Ooh, what are we going to talk about? Um, Craig was just saying, I, I think Craig's can I, oh Paul's in as well. I think Craig's internet connection was like a little bit iffy, but um he was he was suggesting that we start by talking about the Matt Dillahunty debate with um David Wood uh, a couple of days ago. Was there something you wanted to say about that, Craig? I didn't watch it, so I can't really okay. comment on it. <laughs> I've been busy. I'm, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I should jump in here or not. If this is the best use of my time, but I saw the invite. I thought, okay, I'll jump in. So. Oh yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Oh. If you want to talk about anything? So you're Paul. Okay. <laughs> I've been all my life. No, I I saw I saw uh, Nathan tag you in the in the thing, but I didn't know who he was talking to. I've seen you before with Adam Friended, and you've yep. had a couple of discussions on other channels. Mainly, I've yep. seen you talk about Jordan Peterson stuff. Yep. Yep. Talked about a lot of, a lot about that. Okay. It was, it was clicking because I'm finally meeting all these people that I've seen <laughs> all and, over and YouTube. And who are you? I see JB. Yeah. My name is JB. Um, I've, this is actually my third, third thing. I've little call thing I've ever been on all within like the last couple of weeks. I've been around for a while, mainly hiding in the backgrounds and starting fires on Twitter. That's about what I, <laughs> I'm up to right now. <laughs> Is there anything left to burn on Twitter? <laughs> uh, occasionally. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, the dumpster fire kind of calms down. So you just kind of got to keep, keep throwing fuel on it. To Stoke it up again. <laughs> get it going. Yeah. Well, I was curious about how you guys are faring in the UK. Um, Nathan, you said you've you've had it, or you're done with it. Are I've, you still current, currently currently got it at the minute? I think. I mean, I, I'd have no idea because there's no testing. But my symptoms, yeah. What symptoms are your symptoms? Um, so it kind of started off sort of a bit nauseous and weird. Um, so like after training a couple of times last week, I was just a bit lightheaded, and I thought this is a bit strange. I'm going to sit down and stuff. And then I kind of developed a bit of a um, a bit of like coughing and stuff on Thursday and then it's just kind of um it seems to follow this pattern where towards the end of the day it feels like there's um like knives being stuck in my lungs kind of thing and um, wow like like sharp pains in my lungs um and the coughing can get worse I think I might be over the hump of it today today I felt a bit better than I did yesterday but it's just it's just really weird um <laughs> have you had fever um, I've been a little bit hot, but I've not been, I mean, I mean, maybe in the night sweating and stuff, but not really like, um, okay. you know, like, like, like boiling hot or anything like that or something yeah. crazy. Yeah. You know, a lot of people around you that have it. Um, so me and my girlfriend have both, uh, she, she's about three days behind me. Okay. Um, and I, I think maybe I got it at doing jujitsu or something, maybe, um, or maybe at work. I've, I, I really don't know. Cause I, I don't seem to be able to find anyone that I've been in contact with that is like, yeah, I've definitely got it. So maybe someone asymptomatic or something, but yeah. Yeah. I think we're a few days behind you guys in the UK. I don't know anyone personally that has it yet. Um, I, there's the, there's a church right down the road. The first person to die in Sacramento went there. Uh, four other people in the church tested positive from it. And there are others who have symptoms now. So I think we're a few days behind you guys in the UK. Yeah, I was, I was really trying to kind of, uh, because I think um, the church that I used to go to, the vicar is under in self-quarantine now because he's got some symptoms. 
Um, the one that didn't the one that didn't cancel the one that didn't cancel on sunday i shouldn't laugh <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe the calvinist god is a you know has a sense of humor <laughs> i just i can't get over that concept. yeah yeah no there were well i again you know a lot of this has to do with how we see the world i i found this thing a, a tremendous exercise in <laughs> inviting people to pay attention to how they see the world because we very much see the world through our imaginations. Is this a threat? Is this not a threat? At least until something physically happens to us and we experience it directly, you know, none of us can get a test for, for this. Um, I mean, what are we going to do? So it's all of our imaginative filters and how well calibrated those filters are that, leads us into to make the decisions that we're making so it's a it's a really interesting test of jordan peterson's idea of what religion is so yeah, yeah i just i don't i don't see it as a huge danger i know it's out there and stuff but i i it, i walk a cautious line not a completely shutting myself out of society line where, where do you all, live all you can do I live in South Carolina, so we've not too bad on it over here, but yeah. we do have it. Yeah, the 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 doctor who's in charge of, you know, Trump's task force said that 50% of all cases in the U.S. are located in 10 counties, which is kind of a helpful bit of information. One of the one of the problems with how we process these things, too, is the 24 hour cable news cycle and the way it's programmed so that breaking news, three, three new cases in, you know, Panoma County yeah. puts us in your constant state of alarm. So yeah. it's really hard to tell if we're over exaggerating the real danger, yeah. you know, because the, the, the fear has taken on a life of its own. Like in LA, Craig, everything's shut down right now. Yeah. Did you watch that video I sent you yesterday, Craig? You sent me a video yesterday? Yeah, on Twitter. Uh, you even freaking no. liked it. <laughs> you see what I no. do with? You see what I do with? <laughs> no. What? What? How long was the video? And what was it? It was like ten minutes. It was about the whole coronavirus thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I liked it. Liking it is just kind of like here. Here's this thing. It's like me retweeting. Doesn't necessarily right, right. mean I. I endorsed that's it and watched it. It just means that's here, why JB I thinks you this is worth it. your time. No, I didn't. It, it means JB here. JB thinks this is worth your time. And but I know JB. Go, so when I, when I when I tag you in it and go, hey, did you watch it? And you go, well, you didn't send me anything. I'm like, well, you, you liked it. So I know you at least saw it. No, no. I, liking or, or retweeting doesn't mean that I've, I've watched or I retweet and like a lot of things. It just means JB thinks this is everyone right. but it's worth checking it's out an acknowledgement so. it's an acknowledgement that you at least recognize that you were tagged in a tweet with a video right that's that's okay. basically it it doesn't mean i watched it if i watch it i'll usually comment why what did it say was um, it, good? it was saying it was saying that the biggest issue with uh the biggest issue with this isn't so much because I know you did a video talking about how people may be freaking out about it and stuff. I watched right. part of your video. I didn't finish it. But um, and it was basically saying how the, the biggest problem with this isn't so much. The, the biggest thing with this is 
having to fight that curve where we're having X number right, of people you, yeah, you infected with curve. Y a possibility of, with Y materials to cover X X patients. No, so we've got I, to flatten out the curve on, on the whole infection yeah, thing. I totally understand the logic behind shutting everything down, but there's there's a discrepancy because if you if you leave it in the hands of the CDC people, they will say, yeah, best case scenario, we shut everything down to flatten out the curve, the spike in the curve. But that should be balanced against, you know, rational understanding of if you shut a city down for a week, that's going to dramatically, you know, a lot of layoffs. A lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. And I'm not sure if the, if the disease, you know, there are... I'm not sure if, the, if all of the freak out is warranted at the level that we have it at right now. So you're so, a consequentialist, Craig. <laughs> well, yeah, when consequences are actually at stake, sure, everybody is. We got to balance out, like, you know. I'm, I'm being it, silly. I'm being. <laughs> no, I'm talking tomorrow with a, a friend of mine <laughs> who's a Marine, a Navy chaplain in Rome. And uh, from what he's seen, he says, yeah, he. America better get ready because it's pretty grim in Italy. Well, I was going to say bad. this. Uh, the thing that scares me about this graph is that we. So in the UK, you know, this this model was only created about a week ago, and we're here at the minute. And um, you know, like I, I've called NHS one one one, which is the thing we're we're recommended to do. And I at midnight yesterday, so you'd think the lines would be kind of empty. And I was on hold for an hour and 15 minutes, um, didn't get anywhere whatsoever, so just hung up. Um, and I, you know, like I'm 23 and healthy, you think, um, you know, if I was in my 60s or something like that, and um, maybe had some underlying illnesses, and that's the course of action I'm being told to do is wait, um, wait for hours on holding the phone line service. So I have no idea what it's like actually in the hospitals but considering we're here on the curve you know when it starts going um to these kinds of places i have no idea what that even looks like <laughs> yeah you can see it in italy they 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 shut down relatively late and if they're using churches as morgues it's got to be pretty bad Yeah, so I've seen I've seen one video of um one of the wards at nighttime with kind of all stacked up with people on ventilators and stuff, and that was quite scary. Um, but yeah, I don't. I I mean, just reflecting on like I'm I'm in decent shape, my no lung issues, anything like that, and my lungs have hurt quite a bit um, with this whole thing. I, I I do think for people who um, you know, people who aren't kind of who have those health issues and stuff it's not it's not going to be good they're going to be worrying a lot and um it's not it's just not a good situation to be in um yeah if this goes through my church i won't have a church it'll most of the people i'll just be oh yeah they're most all, of the they're people all over, they're all over 60 right it's yeah, all yeah a lot of them over 60 over 70 yeah yeah <laughs> So no, I, I take this seriously. There's a, there's a guy out of the UK, uh, Dr. John Campbell, who's been doing YouTube videos every day. Um, he just basically tracks the numbers. He's, he's just done a, he's had a channel for a while, just giving just basic medical, you know, education. And he's been tracking it pretty thoroughly. If you look at, if you look at the numbers and at the rates of infection, it will, you know, he, he thinks that the UK, the UK is, has been toying with kind of a crowd immunity um, 
idea, which has some validity. But the real question is if your if your medical system gets swamped, like it happened in Italy, then basically your mortality numbers go through the roof because you then you have to do triage, and then anybody over sixty or seventy won't get a ventilator, and they're probably going to die. So it's 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 a it's a serious thing. But yeah, yes. the, the economic ramifications are huge. That's kind of one of the things here, isn't it? Where we don't know how many people are infected because we don't have people tested. That's exactly right. Until testing becomes ubiquitous, um, they're, they're kind of like driving blind in a snowstorm. There's no way to know what they're doing. So that's why they take these draconian measures of shutting. So Sacramento County is on shelter in place. Yellow County shelter in place. The Bay Area is all shelter in place. So. Right. It's, yeah, LA's, LA's, LA is almost there. They shut down all the, the bars, the restaurants are only doing takeout. Yep. Um, yeah, we've got just takeout restaurants is all we're doing now. Over here. Which makes sucks because I actually, sorry. I work in the food delivery business, so. <laughs> you, so you've got a you, job. So, so you're cleaning up, so you're doing good. <laughs> so we're not doing much. I didn't work today. I normally work Thursdays. I don't even know if I'm working tomorrow. Normally, normally out of my <laughs> warehouse, we ship probably 60 to 65,000 cases a night. The last two nights, we've shipped 25. So it's mm. just killing us business-wise. Yeah, yeah I that's think... part of the thing. That's, that's part of the, the part that's the big unknown variable is that if you totally shut down all this economic activity... I mean, you're guaranteeing layoffs and short-term recession, and you, you know, is it? But is the we, these need to be balanced out against the actual perceived risks? That's the point. But here's here's the question, Craig: What kind of recession are we going to hit with a four percent mortality mortality rate across the U.S.? Right, but but my point is is that these these decisions have to be made rationally and balanced out. You can't just make them the way we've been making them where we got a 24-hour news cycle so everyone's like freak out freak out freak out freak out freak well trump's in charge so everything we're doing is rational and calculated let's see that's true but uh, you know. i would i would recommend the um the imperial college that take a look at that um document that's been floating around uh there was a good tweet if you look at my if you look at my twitter thread i posted a tweet summary from a guy who basically looked at the data and they're saying if if the U.S. does nothing based on, and if we're talking rationality, if the U.S. does nothing based on what we know of the illness from China and South Korea, you'll have between 2.2 million and 4 million dead in the United States over the next year from this virus. That's, that's wow. the scientific perspective. Wow. And that's why the sudden freak out on the part of government, because those people saw that number and all of these politicians don't want to be on watch for that death rate. Can I ask Paul a question if we want to change the subject? Let me know when we want to change something. Yeah, feel, feel free to man. do a, I, th I think. Um, oh, I can? Okay, cool. Yeah, Paul, yeah. One, one of the things that I'm very curious about is uh, you do a traditional church, church church, right? That's part yeah. of your, and then you uh, That's my day do, job. Right, well, that's- <laughs> I'm not I a professional really, YouTuber. Well, that's what I find really interesting about you is that in some ways you're a traditional Christian with like, you know, a traditional church service, Jesus loves you, that type of thing. And then you do this whole sort of like Jonathan Pajot, alt-Christianity, 
you know, Jordan Peterson Christian. Um, I, I, how do you balance that out? Um, that's that's my question because that that's really intriguing to me. I think balance you're one of the in terms only... of time or in terms of the ideas? Um, no, the ideas. I'm more interested in the ideas. Time is probably pretty easy. I, I don't your th- church chat. Your church channel doesn't get as many anywhere near as many views, right? No, no. But well, you're, a you're lot of people don't know about the church channel. A lot of people found me via the Jordan Peterson stuff. So the, you actually, I've had some people tell me that even when they're subscribed to my church channel, YouTube doesn't doesn't serve up the videos. Doesn't because they don't think they'll like like Jonathan. They'll be like Jonathan Pajot. What is this? You know? Yeah. No. <laughs> like so they, my my sermons are quite traditional, but. You know, I also appreciate the two different audiences. So the audience on my personal YouTube channel is completely different from the audience in my church. Now, those who watch carefully will notice that once it's in my head earlier on the YouTube audience, it'll get filtered in to the church audience. But I, you know, part of why I saw Jordan Peterson and recognized his importance so early was because these issues that Jonathan Peugeot is pointing at, that many of the other people that I've had on my channel point at, these, these are deep conversations within Christianity for centuries. Right. It's just that what happened in the, in a lot, what happened, what's been happening for the last couple of hundred years in Christianity has been an, uh, a serious distraction from the main thing. So, well, it's he's kind of a the right idea at the right time. Like I pointed out that his ideas aren't all that revolutionary, but you know there there are antecedents to him, like uh, Joseph Campbell, things like that that people always bring up. But in terms of wh- how it's how it's hitting us now, it kind of had a revolutionary effect. Plus the fact that he was on YouTube and gets all these views, and then debates Sam Harris. So you, you kind of go ahead. Well, well, I think, you know, so with this debate with Sam Harris, I mean, what really dawned on me there, well, first of all, I had to recognize that here you have a Canadian psychologist who is filling a theater, you know, charging 40 bucks a head and a good friend of Bible, talking about the Bible and a good friend of mine, Phil Reinders, who pastors Knox Church, right on the Toronto campus. I'm sure he's got plenty of empty pews. So what was going on with Jordan Peterson? And what I came to was that Jordan Peterson in many ways was, was resuscitating the ancient idea of God, which had over the last couple of hundred years sort of been derailed and crowded out by, by, a, by imagining God as some old man in the sky or you know, some, some being within the system. In many ways, what happened in Christianity was God, capital G, became God, small g. And there's a lot to work through with these issues, which is basically what I'm always just trying to work through. And actually today, what's on the docket before I jumped into here, which was probably impulsive, was to really work through, continue to work through a lot of these questions about what do we mean when we're using this word God? And what Jordan Peterson really did was in a theoretical way say, this word God is an enormously important idea that has helped humanity 
do what it's done for the last few thousand years. It's an idea that basically sums up everything plus more. And that, once you begin to understand that, it can very easily become a gateway drug of saying, well, maybe I need to dig more deeply into this. Yeah, totally. Totally. So that's, and I picked that up because when I'm listening to Jordan Peterson talk about God, Sam Harris says, no, that's not God. But listening to what Jordan Peterson had said, if you understand classical Christianity, the kind of ancient Christianity that Jonathan Peugeot knows and the Roman Catholic Church knows and my denomination knows, which is very early Reformation, hasn't been contaminated by a lot of the stuff in the last couple hundred years, you say, oh, no, Jordan Peterson is talking about God. Jordan Peterson has questions about metaphysics and ontology, but he's got a lot of the ideas right. And that's why he's triggering people, even if they don't know it, to get in touch with that. And Jonathan Pichot saw the same thing before I did. So that's interesting. So you're saying that there's a, there's a metaphysical, uh, there's a philosophical metaphysical underpinning to Jordan Peterson that most people would be unaware of that actually lines up well with classical theism? Is that yes. kind of what you just said? Yes. That's a well, very interesting point. That's a unique point. Actually, go ahead. Peter Peterson ahead. doesn't know if that's scientific. And that's where he's, in a sense, an open agnostic. But he's highly open and he's very curious. And so when you listen to his answer about the resurrection, he's basically saying, I see the truth of this. And the truth works in his Darwinian perspective. Right, right. Yeah. But he's not sure how deep it goes. Well, as I, I thought, actually, Rationality Rules video, and when he was having to talk with, I think, a Destiny guy, or one of the guys that said, well, Jordan Peterson does everything except, in a sense, cap the pyramid with actual belief in God. And I think that's exactly right. And that's why yeah, people I, have I just followed along and taken the step. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. What, what jo Jonathan Pajot is actually a traditional orthodox is that is that true is that right extraordinarily traditional so how how is he so out of the box in terms of his thinking because, because those two all of our thinking match. we're living in this bubble of now and what he's doing because he's an artist because he had to dig into all of this ancient stuff what he's doing is simply bringing ideas that everyone knew and assumed 500 and a thousand and 2000 years ago and bringing them here. And we're all like, oh, uh, this is new. It's not new. It's actually old. We've just forgotten it. We don't find I it around you. us, except as what he's doing is he's saying, no, this is built in all over the place. You just don't have eyes to see. Right. I got you. Okay. So that the philosophical underpinnings of the ancients were actually a lot more intellectual and open-minded and cerebral. And we just, you, you the trend of, of, has walked away from that over the modern times, whereas right. it was there was a structure there that was intellectually sound, right? And right. Th that's your your kind of are you're you're a Calvinist, correct? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Th this uh, is something I, w I wanted to to ask actually, Paul, and and I don't mean this in like a an offensive way, but how do you reconcile that um, that view of God being this kind of ancient mystery type thing with? Um, you know, with, with this kind of reformed Calvinistic theology, do, do those two things not conflict at all or, or anything like that? Well, the thing you have to understand about Calvinism is that 
as Richard Mueller, who taught at Calvin Seminary for a number of years, um, asked, is are most Calvinists Calvinists? Because some of what happened in the 16th century in terms of how it is applied today fundamentally misunderstands what Calvin, who knew very well church fathers, understood. So what you see now in the likes of someone like John MacArthur, who's actually a dispensationalist, and many who sort of follow him, in my opinion, that's not really Calvinism, because it's really some of some fatalistic ideas poured on top of dispensationalism. So, so Nathan's idea of what Calvinism is wouldn't necessarily be accurate. Is that kind of what you're saying? It's probably not in alignment with a lot of my ideas. Because so when I, I've, I've done a couple of conversations with a scholar who wrote this book, Transubstantiation, and he's the um, he's a scholar works in Regina, Saskatchewan. So I've just recently done two conversations with him. And if you read a book like this, what you begin to discover is a lot of the difference between Luther and Calvin and Aquinas, not all of it, but a lot of it was because the philosophical assumptions shifted and so Luther had a tough time figuring out what Aquinas was really after. And, and, and so, and when Calvin comes along and uses real presence, he was actually trying to get at a very similar idea to what had happened earlier with the word transubstantiation. And, and Brett Sockold, who I, again, I did a couple of conversations with on my channel, in this book, he's done a lot of helpful things in terms of clarifying that and helping you know, suss out some of what happened in the Reformation. Now, there are plenty of other issues that are still, you know, that are still there. But in many ways, people who are connected with historical Christianity are, as I think Jonathan Peugeot is demonstrating, very up to date in terms of, you know, what they're seeing and believing. This stuff hasn't gone away. Because yeah. I was going to I was going to say though, Paul, I think my kind of understanding of um, church history and there was a book that I read recently. Um, I'm just trying to remember what the name of it was um, the foundations of Augustinian Cal uh, Calvinism by uh, Ken Wilson. I don't know if you've heard of it, but he he makes the case that he did. It, it's like a, a broken down version of his um, defil that he did at Oxford. And he makes the case that essentially the tulip theology wasn't really a thing in Christianity up until the late Augustine. So Augustine didn't even hold to it early on in his career. Um, and that so he could actually become a bishop because there was like this kind of rule that if you'd been like a Gnostic or a Manichaean, you couldn't become a bishop. But he kind of broke that rule um, and, and held all these orthodox positions at the time. And then his later theology kind of includes the a, a lot of the tulip points, a lot of the predestination stuff that Calvin later picks up on. But for many of the, the church fathers before that, it, it wasn't actually a thing. And their kind of like theodicies and things would be almost... Um, what we might call like Arminian in a sense where it'd be almost like backwards causation of, of God or God's knowledge being um, caused by our actions as opposed, as opposed to um, things just happening in this kind of like, like straight line got uh, according to God's foreknowledge. I was wondering what are your thoughts are surrounding any of that sort of stuff? I, so if you look at my first conversation with Brett Sockold, I think he treated it very well in terms of, and this actually does connect with the Jordan Peterson stuff, 
what happened was that God became part of the system in a way that it's really hard to talk about this stuff that God wasn't before. Another book that I've been talking a lot about is this book by a Jewish scholar, um, The Religion of Israel. And Inspiring Philosophy has recently done some videos on revolutionary monotheism versus evolutionary monotheism, similar treating similar stuff to this book. So, so what happens in deism is that in a sense, God moves away and this is exactly what's going on between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. First, God moves away from the system. So his transcendence gets emphasized and his imminence gets forgotten. Now, so, so in, the, in the 17th century, when they're dealing with deism, conservatives try to double down on imminence. And that's where you'll get 17th century expressions of something like tulip. That's an attempt to recover what was what was assumed in the ancient world, but as deism then continues to give birth to the enlightenment and God just keeps floating off into the distance and, and the world just is as such, you, you begin to approximate what um, Ezekiel Kaufman describes as basic paganism, which is the conceptualization of the universe as a meta-divine realm in which gods and other spiritual creatures, spiritual beings function. God is a being, not being itself, and then some. And so then what happens is that basically contemporary materialism is a new version of what Kaufman described as the metadivine realm. Now, and that leads to what Sam Harris imagines God to be, which is a God floating around something similar to Zeus. But if you understand what the Hebrews were doing, you cannot really conceptualize what they understood the word God to mean as something parallel to what the Greeks conceptualized Zeus as being. And, and this has been known. So, so actually, Brett, I haven't seen it yet. Brett pointed to a conversation between Rowan Williams and Richard Dawkins, where Williams pointed this out, you know, historical Christians have been pointing this out forever, but Sam Harris and Dawkins simply understand God as a being within a, an impersonal realm of acting. And then you get all the kinds of issues that in some ways Tulip was trying to address. But the further you get out from Tulip, or the further you get out from the ancient conception, the stranger and stranger it becomes. But it's really just a redux of what Kaufman so, was dealing with. So is Tulip part of Calvinism as far as you understand and practice Calvinism? Like, what, what do you make of total depravity, for example? I, what I make of total depravity is that um, none of us are as good as we can or should be. And everything is contaminated. It doesn't mean all of us are as bad as we could be. That's not what total depravity means. Right. So you're saying total. Does tulip match any of your Calvinism, or is it just? Yeah, some I subscribe sort of... to the canons of Dort, but okay. I subscribe to the canons of Dort, understanding that the canons of Dort was attempting 
to address in a deistic age what the church had always believed back through Calvin and Aquinas back to the New Testament. And that's why when we read the Bible, you know, so when you read the Bible, if you read in the book of Ephesians that, you know, from the foundations of the earth, we were chosen, but then we read Jesus walking around telling people to make decisions. Well, the Bible doesn't have see a conflict in that. Why do we? We do because of what had happened philosophically over the last 500 years, which is the same thing that Charles Taylor was trying to point out in a secular age. Well, also, there's not necessarily a contradiction between um, the idea that that God responds to those, the response, the, the, the contradiction that atheists tend to see between a Calvinistic idea of like God is sovereign, therefore you have no free will. But God, if God can anticipate your desire and respond to your desire, um, I'm not saying this correctly, but um, it, one of the things that the Calvinists get right is that God has to turn on the light. That's part of it. So the difficulty we have when we talk this way is that we think of God as being in the system. And I thought Brett Sockold said that perfectly in my first conversation with him. And the, the bigger difficulty we have is conceptualizing both God as something that the Hebrew scholars recognized as, as being something, an alternative to the metadivine realm, which all of paganism assumes, but then also God incarnates himself because I mean, there's a reason why this is so mind blowing. And if you get hung up on tulip issues, you're really going to get hung up on Christology issues because what happens in Christology is God takes on flesh. And once when we hear that today in a fundamentally deistic realm, oh, that's no big deal. But the ancients, when they heard it, said, right, what? God, man of God, yeah, transcendent and imminent at the same time was like mind boggling. And then right. revolutionary in a lot of ways, especially Jesus, revolutionary. Right. And, yes. and so why, that's why I use the Isaiah passage in Isaiah 6, when God shows up in the temple and he says to, he says to Isaiah, the angels sing about God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, three holies. That means he, he's, he's, you know, he, he's so transcendent, we can't conceptualize him. The whole right. earth is full of his glory. Well, how then, do you put those two things together? See, and that's I see. where we're stuck. I think, I think there's the idea oh, of trans- Hi, Stephanie. Hey, Craig, what's happening? <laughs> I saw myself linked in there. No, I, I, I was just listening because I think that I have, um, I don't, I also go for Molinism. I actually think Molinism is a pretty good position because I feel like Molinism gives God a, a better understanding of the way God is in time. He's concurrently in the past, present, future, and he knows what we will, would, and could do under various situations. And he tries to put us into the situations that'll maximize the best outcomes for everybody. And so, so I see it like that, but I have a lot of people who are always saying, well, if you have free will and God knows what you're going to do in the future, then you must not be able to do anything. You can't thwart God's will. And it's yeah. like, well, no, that's not the conception because people don't understand that God is outside time. So he's not bounded by our linear time as, as we are. So people really have a hard time with that. Stephanie, can yeah. I ask you a question? Sure. Okay. As far as God knowing what's going to happen. Take an instance like Jesus dying on the cross, okay? 
were there any ancient Rome people that had the free will to kill Jesus before he was going to be crucified? Yeah, they had the free will. God knew which ones were going to make that choice too. No, before he was crucified. So could, did any ancient Roman have the free will to kill Jesus when he was 15? Yes. So they had the right to overthrow God's prophecy? No, it's, it, well, it doesn't quite work like that. See, it's basically what it is, is they had the right, but nobody exercised their right. If they did exercise the right, perhaps things wouldn't have come about the same way it did. But God maximized the possibility that what happened for Jesus happened in the way it did. He already foresaw that. But they you, could you might ask yourself time, a question right? this way. I mean, think about, so, so what Brett talked about is primary and secondary causality. Let's imagine you work for a gun manufacturer and you build a gun. And let's say that someone buys that gun, takes it home, and commits a crime. Are you responsible for that crime? Well, no. Why? You built the gun. Correct. They, could, they, but, could they have committed that crime without that gun? Yes, they could have committed these. They, they could have killed somebody without the purchase of my firearm. But it wouldn't have been the same without that gun. See, and it's 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 these and these kinds of questions are a manifestation of basically what happened in the Enlightenment in a new perspective on the world. But but what but what's interesting is that in a sense it's a it's in a sense a really tricky synthesis of paganism and Christianity together because an ancient wouldn't ask a question like that. It's like asking, "Can I square a circle?" Well, no, you can't. Well, can't don't you have the you. will to square a circle? Or you can't do the logically impossible. Well, this is this is part of what we're dealing with with questions like these. If you understand how the table was set, and and most contemporary adjustments like Molinism are a way to adjust the dominance of what I call God number two in our language today, an ancient. These weren't problems for ancient people because the table looked different to them, which is why Paul on one hand will say, you know, he called us from the foundation of the earth. And on the other hand, at the book of Acts will plead with, you know, a, a Roman official to accept Jesus. I mean, if I, if I were to come in for a moment, I'd say the, the gun manufacturer um, thing is, um, possibly a question of moral responsibility and not whether someone could have done otherwise or whether they have free will um, and may, maybe doesn't get at what um, JB was getting at there. But I also think the, I, I think the Molinist and the, the Calvinist theological positions are, are not compatible with each other. They're different things because the, the Molinist is holding to that events happen contingently. People have free will to contingently do things differently. Um, it's just that God so ordered things that our contingent choices line up, whereas the Calvinist is holding that they happen necessarily according to God's foreknowledge. And those are different states of affairs. You, you, um, you couldn't have done otherwise on the Calvinist view, whereas on the Molinist view, you could have done otherwise because it's contingent. Well, have you ever known a Calvinist to not admonish anyone anything? I, I mean, I, I think yeah, that people, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's hard Calvinism, the way he, Nathan is right, the way some Calvinists frame it, definitely, that, and I've heard them even argue this, that, yeah. you, you know, God is so sovereign they, that you couldn't have done otherwise. Go right, ahead. but they can't live by it. 
which is exactly the same problem with a lot of materialists. Right, which, which is exactly why there's, there's, a, there's a basic logical flaw if you follow Calvinism to its most extreme. Like uh, when Cy was on Stephanie's channel, he was talking about um, humanity is underneath the water. Th this was his analogy. Humanity is underneath the water and God sovereignly elects to come down and save these four people. Those are the saved. So you have almost no decision involved in the process at all. And the first most basic question is, how is that possibly fair? <laughs> you know? So that's like, that's the pro that's one problem, but go ahead. Yeah, I look at, I look Joshua 24, 10, and I just say, you know, as for me and my house, I will choose the Lord. God gave us choices. And so I just look at that. And I look at the fact also in the Old Testament, I believe it was Saul when uh, somebody asked God what, what would happen if he did a certain thing? And it's like, well, Saul will kill you if you do that. I forget, was it David? Or I think it was David. David asked God what would happen. Well, Saul will kill you if you go into that town. And so he decided not to go into the town. So Saul didn't kill him. And so, but if he had decided to go into the town, then he would have been killed. And God had that foreknowledge, if you put it that way. Um, can, I, can I do one more quick thought experiment? And this one's mainly for Paul, but I'd like to hear Craig and Stephanie's answers before Paul answers. If I could, okay. right, I'll give you 10 more minutes. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm going to set it up sort of, there's not going to be a flat out syllogism, but it's going to kind of have like rough premises to it just to kind of structurally lay it out a little bit. So if we believe the Bible is the word of God and it can't be wrong. And the Bible says that God's not a man that he can change his mind, which means God's decisions are fine out are final. And what he says is, is what happens. Under a Calvinist worldview, God's plan has been set out since the formation of the earth, which means once God's plan was designed, God no longer had the free will to do anything except for what his plan was because he could not change his mind about his plan. See, I, I just look at that and I feel like God is, God is so, I think you know, as tiny little humans on the third rock from the sun, we are, it's, it's incomprehensible to us how God could create a plan and he could know way in advance exactly how it was all going to play out. And I feel like he did know way in advance how it's all going to play out, but this is way beyond our mental comprehension of anything that we could possibly imagine. I mean, just remember, he's the one who created the entire universe. His knowledge is amazing. So he knows, and he's, he's concurrently in the past, present, future, transcendent, imminent. So he knows exactly what we're going to do because he's already watched the entire process play out. What was the question? <laughs> was there a question? <laughs> not, not so much of a question as just kind of pointing out a thing where how, how I feel that under Calvinism, you kind of eliminate free will for God. Because God's set out a plan. He can't change his mind from that plan. So day three of creation, he no longer has he no longer has the free will to do anything else because it's already determined what he's going to do. So God would bind himself. Yeah. Well, in a, okay. Well, well I mean, it's, kind of, it's kind of why I wanted to go to Paul. I kind of wanted Paul to go last because I figured with him having a better understanding of the Calvinist model that he might. Have yeah, my understanding of the Calvinist model is pretty, pretty nil. Depends which Calvinist you're talking about. <laughs> can we go side 10 brewing cake? What's that? I said, can we go side 10? Side 10 gave side uh, 10. Ravi Zacharias a run for his money on one of those apologetics 
uh, madness. Just by <laughs> repeating the same question over and over again and not engaging in a conversation, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 cho I chose to write in G-Man, so. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the crazy thing, again, the, 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 basic, the basic division is between conceptualizing the universe as an impersonal meta-divine realm out of which gods emerge versus conceptualizing the universe as something closer to, let's say, a computer simulation. Okay. If you've ever played a computer game, I was watching my kids play Uncharted one day and their guy was running around. And I very quickly learned that my kids had a tremendous amount of agency within you know, the little game. They could run over here, they could run over there, could run over here, run over there. Very quickly, however, you began to realize that the, the game designers were pretty smart in that they're giving the people a whole lot of agency, but there very much is a story which is sort of winding right. around. Totally. Okay? And, and so the agency of the designer and the agency of the player are not really at odds. The agency of the player is within the agency of the designer. So historically, Christianity has asserted that God, let's say analogous to the computer game designer, is far freer than the player. But once the designer begins to unfold a game in order for the coherence, like if I'm playing Uncharted and a T-Rex shows up in the middle of the game, well, I suppose the computer designer could do that, but it's not along the lines of what the designer How the wills for the game. Right. So, and, and this is where we get into, and again, when, when if you go back to my two conversations with Brett Sockold, he was getting into primary and secondary causality. In this illustration, the game designer has primary causality. He, in a sense, has set the table for the player. The player has secondary causality because the entire realm and the entire menu of tools that the player has in order to move freely within the game are derived from the designer of the game. So in That's other words, comparison. their wills their wills are not really... Now, now, it could be that, well, what is the desire for the designer for the player of the game? Probably enjoyment for them to reach the end, to be successful but not too successful, um, all of these things. Now, a computer player could decide, I'm going to spend hours on end running in circles in this one level of the game. Oh, okay. Well, knock yourself out. But that is not the will of the designer for the player. Yeah, it, it totally makes sense. The, it, that that framing is actually an excellent analogy because yeah. if you could, you, it gives people free will within a context where God is sovereign, God is presiding over everything, and God gives people free will within boundaries that He has foreordained, so that the the computer game has a has has a has a point, and right. if you play the game correctly, you wind up in heaven with a mansion in the sky and living forever and ever and ever with atheists serving waiting on you hand and foot um wow <laughs> i just i just i just threw the last part in there the crowd. Well, it's better, it's better than burning forever right um but congratulations you game, paul you turned craig to a calvinist 
<laughs> the, the game has the if you if you play the game correct, the game has a, a superstructure and a meta structure, and there are there are boundaries for the game. But within the confines of the game itself, you have free will. You know that doesn't mean you're omnipotent and can do whatever you want. You have free will within the structure of what God has provided for you. Right. Which so. is why I don't like the phrase free will. I like real agency because the player in the game can't do anything. And in that sense, the game designer doesn't want to do anything. And so the player in the game has real agency. They're a real agent. They're walking around. They have agency. So I, I think um, may, may, perhaps an issue with the analogy might be um, because it's pulling in the concept of free will from our world. Whereas when we're using, um, when we're talking about God and creation, we're talking about free will um, and time, the passage of time, how that works and causation, all being, you know, God being the first cause, God, God moving time, whether we hold to like an A theory or a B theory or whatever. Um, and we're talking to, to all of that being created by God. So um, on that analogy, we can kind of say, okay, the program has set up these constraints, but that you know, for the analogy to work fully, there'd have to be some reality within which um, almost God was nested. And, it, you know, it, would, it doesn't necessarily work with God being that grounding for being like you were saying. And then my other thing on that would be that that begins to sound a little bit kind of like um, pantheism or something. And do you ever get those kind of objections from Christians saying that, that you know, this sounds like pantheism to me and, uh, uh, and get, get a bit wary of it theologically, maybe? Well, the, the difficulty with pantheism is the idea that God is exhausted by the systems we see. And that's exactly what holy, holy, holy addresses. That God is not exhausted by his creation. And that's exactly why, for example, the third commandment of not making a graven image is there. Because within paganism, the assumption is that God is like Again, go back and, again, if you read this book, if you look at the two conversations, the Roman Catholic Church or the, and the Church Fathers dealt with the question, can we, can, we, can we conceptualize, and, and to the degree that we can conceptualize and relate to something, can, are, can we use analogy? And in many ways, all we have is analogy, which makes the, the third commandment of no graymed images, I mean, if you understand the ancient world and you see that commandment, you should have an inkling of what Kaufman had picked up on in that, you know, if you would say, let's, let's say a baker, I, I've never seen the baker. I don't know what a baker really is, but I'm going to represent the baker by, by making a cake and worshiping a cake. And the baker says, I'm far more than the cake. I am the source of the cake. I am the I am the source of all the cake's glory. So, so pantheism imagines that God is number one impersonal. All pantheism does is take the meta divine realm and call that God. And the Hebrews said no. Um, and that's why the computer simulation analogy is a little bit better because actually a computer designer has far more ontology than the designer's creation and causality and freedom. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I gotta go, guys. Okay, yeah, I gotta thank run you right so much. You. But uh, this was fun. Um,
Yeah, this was really Thanks. fun. Paul, I want I, I would love you to come be uh sit down on my channel and do a chat sometime. So okay. I'll I'll send if I, you want, I'll, just, I'll send John Buck to get you. I, right. I want to point this out. I want to point this out. Craig has now invited two people in the last three days, not named JB, to come to his You channel. were invited yesterday, JB. You didn't show up. <laughs> he clicked like on the tweet. <laughs> JB, you, you, I had a table, a chair for you yesterday. And for 45 minutes, I'm saying to John, where's JB? He's not here. You stood me up at the dance. And then you pretend like I stand you up at the dance. What? <laughs> I... I you know these head I can't do evenings, me. man. I can't do evenings. I got a wife and two kids. Uh, I got a wife, <laughs> not not two kids. I have a wife on Corona quarantine. That's why I'm sitting in a car in front of my apartment right now. So, you're whenever I'm having a stream that isn't an interview, you are always invited. Always, you okay. can always take take a, you know, tell tell John because he's usually running the stream. So say, John, I'm invited. If this isn't an interview. I'm invited. Craig invited me personally. And if he starts arguing with you, go, well, I'm, I'm not crazy about you. Then, you know, then we'll have a discussion with John. He's, he's in the chat, so hopefully he... Oh, is he really? Uh-oh. He Never was. Mind. I don't know if he still is. <laughs> oh, probably not. No, you're always invited, JV. Anytime, anytime it's not an interview, um, you're, you can always, you know, I'll always shoot you a link if you want. So, there you go. Yeah, I didn't catch much of your chat last night. I saw you had Caleb on. Yes, and Caleb's you were, been trying you were to get to me on his channel too. Caleb's been trying to get me on his channel too. I had a couple of things I wanted to go over with Caleb from some of his. JB's in demand, Craig. Get him on. Get him on. Give him the invite. Do the interview. I tried man. to have him yesterday. He totally blew me off. He blew me off. I sent a link. And he's like, oh, I'm the hottest God, atheist without a YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna dip. Yeah. Take all, care, all the best, Paul. Uh, dealing with your congregation and all that stuff as well. With uh, throughout all this, hope it you know. Thank you. Goes right. Thanks. Bye bye. Yeah, thanks for coming on, guys. Bye. Yeah, this was a bye. good stream, Nathan. Bye. Awesome. Uh, you gonna end it, or you got a little bit? What's yeah, I'm gonna end it in a second. Uh, oh, that's cool. I'm just—it's just because the stream's a few seconds behind. <laughs>